they, uh, they had spent 300 years in slavery. God had finally released them and he'd given them what he called a promised land and they moved into this place and he gave them also 613 laws, 10 of which we call the 10 commandments. And they'd moved into that place and God had blessed. They'd had some great victories. But along the way, God had warned them that just as he would bless them in unbelievable ways if they kept the commands he gave them, that they would have the ultimate time out if they didn't keep those commands. And sure enough, over time, what we call the nation of Israel turned their back on God more and more and more, and his patience ran out, and our Lord keeps every promise, and none of his threats are empty. And he allowed them to be captured by a nation called Babylon. And a young man, really a whole group of young nobles, they were, they were captured and they were taken to this place called Babylon, this godless, godless uh, uh, place. In fact, if you were to somehow be in heaven and, and listen to them chat and talk, uh, and they were talking about evil, you would realize that in the Bible, the absolute personification of evil, the word picture that all of them have for evil is Babylon. It's not Nazi Germany, it's not some of the things we could think of throughout all of history. It is simply Babylon. How do I know that? Well, because in the last book of our Bible, Revelation, what we're told is when the angels finally discover that it's time for Jesus Christ to return, with excitement they cry out, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And to this place a young teenager His name is Daniel, and in this series of unsung heroes, some of you are wondering, well, how does Daniel fit in as an unsung hero? Well, he's not unsung, but what we're going to discover is his story is really unknown. And he he is chained, he is taken all the way to Babylon. When he gets there, by the way, he's castrated, because what these kings did is they would take the beautiful women and bring them home to be in their harem, and they would take the... Uh, noble young men and they would castrate them for obvious reasons, hanging around with a harem, and they would put them into the administration of the king that had conquered them. And towards the end of his life, Daniel writes an autobiography. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at just this first chapter, and I want to leave a challenge with you that you in this next week would read through the entire book of Daniel in your Bible with the lens of asking, where do I see the four things we're going to talk about that were the keys to his ability in this most godless of environments throughout all of human history to not just survive, but to actually thrive? Uh, Do any of you feel uh, occasionally like we're headed to hell in a handbasket at warp speed? Any of you kind of feel that way? Well, I want to tell you the experiences and, and, and the life and the things that we're going to see in the, in the life of Daniel, that, that what he had to face was a hundred times worse than anything not only we have faced, but that we can even imagine in the future. And again, he not only survived, he thrived. He actually led during the 70 plus years of his lifetime, three national revivals. 
And so at the end of his life, when he begins to write this autobiography, he does what every author does of any biography or their own autobiography. He starts out by setting the context and and making sure we understand the things that are absolutely most important. So we're going to dig in with uh, uh, this first chapter here. And what we're going to discover is Daniel's an incredibly different book than most of us have, if you've had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, most of us ever thought. I mean, I knew his story because I grew up in a a godly Christian home and went to Sunday school. And over and over, I'd hear the story about Daniel in the, talk to me, lion's den, right? And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and my kids called it, to bed we go. And a fiery furnace and an idol they were supposed to bow down to. And if they didn't bow down to that idol, they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And Daniel goes into the lion's den and, the, and these hungry lions all go on a high-carb diet. And uh, the three guys go into the furnace and they don't die. I mean, it's amazing. Sunday school staff, the eyes get this big. So we think of it as an adventure story. Or some of you realize there's a prophecy section at the end. So, oh man, it's a great place for all of us who like to speculate on the end times. But none of that is why Daniel was written and why God said, print it, put it in the Bible. It was put there because it's a primer on how you and I, just like Daniel, can thrive, not just survive. So you ready? Let's dig in and let's see where where we go with this. How to thrive in Babylon, the four secrets of Daniel's success. And the first one we find in these first two verses, and it is optimism. Daniel was a man of optimism. Now, the biblical word for it is hope. I use optimism because in the English language, when we hear the word hope, we jump to certain ideas of more wishful thinking. I hope the weather is good. Uh, I hope my team wins the game. I hope this or that. But the biblical word hope means I am absolutely certain. I'm banking everything on it. That's why the Bible talks uh, about our blessed hope, the Lord Jesus. It's not kind of, well, I kind of hope he comes back. It's no, I'm banking everything on the fact that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. So let's see this optimism in these first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Now, if you treat your Bible as a life textbook, and I sure hope you do. I kind of grew up where, you know, you brought it to church, but other than that, it was kind of kept on the coffee table to keep it from floating away or something. Uh, and, and God forbid I would mark in it. I'd go to hell immediately, you know. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's not meant as a holy book. It's meant as an instruction book with training. And, and so uh, whether you use a digital Bible or a paper Bible, mark this up. And you want to underline that phrase, and the Lord delivered. Because this is the key verse to the, unlocking the entire book of Daniel. Because he's going to de- uh, describe the reason for everything he did, for the way he thought in every situation he faced. Verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Catch this. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. In other words, in this passage, Daniel's saying, from the get-go, as I was captured, chained, brought here, castrated, forced to study the occult, and all this stuff, in the back of my mind was this understanding. God's in control of who's in control. 
And that changes everything about the way you and I respond to life. Because if I forget God's in control of who's in control, I think, you know, I need to take things into my own hands. I think I need to fight fire with fire rather than how Jesus told me to respond. Because after all, it's, it's like all up to me and everything's going downhill. Daniel, with everything going downhill, remembers and, and starts out with, I don't like this. I don't understand it. I don't have any idea what is going on. I'm not totally sure why, but I know this. It is the Lord who delivered Jerusalem to this damnable, godless, demon-worshiping king. And it's the Lord who allowed him to ransack the temple of God, take things devoted from the temple, all the way back to the temple of, of, of Baal, his demon God, as a mockery of the true God. Now, would you help me out? That's not exactly the way I think I would think if I was in his situation. And that's why I want to start with this. I'm actually going to spend a little more time on this than the other uh, three because it is so critical to us being able to survive and thrive in any Babylon situation. You're in a godless workplace thing. Uh, you're in a godless extended family thing, your neighborhood, uh, something in your city, your region, your state, our nation, the world, all of these things. This, these principles apply everywhere, but they begin with this one thing. Understanding God's in control of who's in control. And here's what that means. Panic and despair are never from God. A panicked or despairing Christian is an oxymoron because it means we don't understand this principle. Now, as a teaching pastor uh, uh, and pretty much any pastor that has the privilege of teaching the word of God gets this, at North Coast Church where I'm at, uh, all the time, Chris Brown, the other teaching pastor and myself, we get people coming up to us and they want us to work through the book of Revelation as a sermon series. Now, the fact is, they don't really want to study the book of Revelation. They just want to know who the Antichrist is and when Jesus is coming back. And uh, I always am having to tell them, I'm sorry I'm on the welcoming committee, not the programming committee. So, you know, I don't know all the answers to all the things you wish I knew. I just don't know what the Bible says. And after that, it's my guess is as good as yours. But I, I have read the book. And I, I, I peeked at the end. And did you know we win? Did you know we win? So here's my question. If you know we win, why do you care what the score is in the third quarter? You see, as a sports fan... And any of you who like sports know that probably your favorite game in the past of your favorite team is one, a game that was hopelessly lost with a miracle finish, right? Now, I, I know exactly where I am geographically. And so before I tell this story, I need, will you all promise to give me grace? That wasn't good enough. Do you all promise to give <laughs> Okay, amen, hallelujah, cross your heart, hope to die, thousand needles in your eye, I mean, the whole bit, okay. It's all my dad's fault. But from a, being a little kid on, he raised me to be a USC football fan. And if you, you, dude, you said you would give me grace. 
Like, let's, come on. And if you know anything about USC football, people think the most important game on the USC schedule is the UCLA game, and it is not. It is the Notre Dame game. That's the team you want to beat. And it's a, a, a team you want to beat without a lot of uh, trash talking and all of this because there's a mutual respect of two great storied programs, but that's the one you want to beat. Well, uh, <laughs> a long time ago, far away in another galaxy, USC used to be good. Um, and uh, they were on their way to what looked like their third straight national championship. And they were playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame. SC had an incredibly fast team. And so what the groundskeepers at Notre Dame did was they cheated. No. <laughs> at least I thought so. They let the grass grow. It grew so high. If you look at an old film of that, you can't see the player's feet. USC had a, a, a great running back at that time named Reggie Bush. And uh, I mean, if the grass is this high, you ain't running very fast. And then another thing about sports, any of you who like sports know that if you were the superior team, which you know that year SC was, um, if you don't take opportunities, you keep squandering them over and over, something bad is gonna happen. And so I'm watching the game at home on a brand new big screen, alone. And over and over and over, SC is ahead most of the game, but they keep squandering opportunity. I kept feeling like, dude, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. Something bad's gonna happen. And sure enough, with less, uh, a little less than two minutes left, Notre Dame marches down the field and takes the go-ahead touchdown. Well, I am pretty bummed out because I knew this was going to happen. Well, on the kickoff, I also know that God reigns in heaven. And I think he's a USC fan. And so probably SC will run the kickoff back or somehow have a miracle finish or whatever it would be. But instead the kickoff goes out of the end zone. They start on the 20 yard line, gain five yards. The next uh, play, they lose a couple. And then on the next play, a Notre Dame uh, lineman breaks through and throws the USC quarterback for a about 13 yard loss. So now it's fourth and a gazillion. The clock is running out. And I tell you, when he throws them for the 13-yard loss, the Notre Dame stands go nuts. Everybody's jumping around doing this. The players are all chest bumping. <laughs> Stupid leprechauns going across the field. I'm ready to throw something at that TV. And then I realize it's brand new. I haven't even paid for it yet. All right. But... We have, at that point in our church, was growing extremely rapidly. We had two Saturday night services and all the ones on Sunday and everything. So I got to go preach in a couple hours. And I have totally lost my sanctification. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, like, I'm afraid God might strike me dead when I walk up on that stage, you know. All those Christian euphemisms, we you say. Well... On fourth and a gazillion yards uh, to go, the quarterback fades back and he throws a pass down the sideline and it just gets over the fingertips of the cornerback, nestles in the hands of the USC receiver who runs all the way down to the one-yard line, but he's tackled there. Long story short, as the final play of the game, we call it the Bush push, order is restored in the universe <laughs> and USC wins. Now, I have a video uh, uh, of that game. I watch it once a month, once a week. No, no, no. 
hardly ever watched it really. But I have watched it a few times. Now here's what happens. When I get to the point of the Notre Dame touchdown, whatever, and then the kickoff, and then the big final big play where the announcers are going, hey, the winning streak is over, and everybody's doing this, and the leprechaun, and when I get to that point, guess what I do? I play it again. And I play it fast forward, I mean, in slow motion. I watch the chest bumps. I watch the high fives. I watch the little leprechaun. And then I play it again. And I love every second of it. Now help me out. I'm watching the same thing. And I've got an incredibly different outlook. In fact, I want to see it again. Why? Because I what? I know how it ends. Men and women, I want to challenge you in every bit of your attitudes right now, in every bit of your actions, uh, in every bit of your, your, your emotions and feelings. If you have stepped over the line to follow Jesus, is your life lived like you know we win? Or is your life lived like the third quarter is live and you don't have a peek at what's happening? Because to do the next three things we're going to see that Daniel did, the only way you'll ever do it, it seems so like, well, this is a crazy way to respond. The only way you and I can ever respond this way is if we understand the gates of hell will not prevail. And in the end, we win. So what is it that he did? Well, out of that optimism, out of that hope, what Daniel was able to have was incredible wisdom. The ability to pick his battles, to know what was worth making an issue over and what was worth letting go. So let's pick it up in verse two of Daniel, uh, three of Daniel chapter one. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. And then I love how Daniel, remember this is autobiography, I love how he describes himself and his friends so humbly. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, uh, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, if I say so myself. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Do you know what the language and literature of the Babylonians was? It's astrology and the occult. A three-year curriculum of studying two things absolutely forbidden by God to do, but forced to study them. Now, here's the principle here of his wisdom. That you and I, you might want to jot this phrase down and take it home, and it's so important. There's a big difference between what we don't like and what God forbids. And when I look at the list of things that Daniel overlooked, I, my mind is blown Notice the long list that many of us would have turned into a major issue if we'd been alive that day. I think I sure would have if I didn't have Daniel tell me differently. Forced to study an absolutely demonic pagan curriculum for three years. He didn't sit, sit in the back. He did not go. He sat in the front row and as we're going to see, graduated number one in his class, which gave him the ability later on to say, I know this stuff better than anybody. I don't want to tell you it's absolutely junk. And let me tell you about the God most high, who he is and where true wisdom comes from. How about the name change? Okay. 
Among those who were chosen to serve, we're told, were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah. Verse 7 says, the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, God, which means God is my judge. He gave the name Belshazzar, which means Baal's prince. That's like you have the name Christian, you're a Jesus follower, and somebody captures you and changes your name to Satan's prince. And he didn't do anything about it. He didn't care. He said, call me anything you want as long as it's not late to dinner. And then for 67 or so years, he's in the administration of a godless, demon-worshiping king, and he serves him so well, he keeps getting promoted. Would you, those are mind-blowing things. Without the book of Daniel, I would never even think, like, I'm a Jesus follower. Why would I do this? But Jesus actually talked about loving our enemies, didn't he? Jesus actually talked about a bunch of things that make for good sermons but hard to do life. And I want to tell you, they can only be done when I start with optimism and hope. And then I'm able to have this kind of wisdom, which allows me to see the difference between what I like, I don't like, what I prefer, what bugs me, what, what plays on my conscience, and what has an absolute command from God. And now that leads to the third key to his ability to thrive. Not only optimism, not only wisdom to pick his battles, but the third thing is called courage. Courage. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, what we need to understand, he's going to say, hey, this is not a kosher diet, and I'm not going to eat it. What we need to understand is, like, why that would be. Now, Gutenberg hadn't come along yet, so Daniel had no idea of all the 613 laws probably, uh, not because they weren't available, but because the nation of Israel was in such wickedness at that time that God's turning them over to the Babylonians for 70 plus years of time out. So it's, it's very unlikely that he knew much of God's law. But even in the darkest moments of all, the nation of Israel, the people knew a, a boy is circumcised on the eighth day. You do not bow down to an idol, which by his way, his, uh, his friends won't do later on, and you eat the kosher diet. So this isn't a matter of opinion. This is a matter of God has laid down a rule. So what's he do? He resolves not to eat it and catch this. He demanded the chief official, oh, excuse me. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, because of his attitude toward the guy, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. The chief official liked him. <laughs> but he told, him, he told Daniel, you know, I'm afraid of my lord the king. You don't know how, how bloodthirsty this place is. You don't know how evil this guy is. He's assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So he just goes down. The guy who's got the keys. And catch this. Please. Circle highlight that. Please. Test. Circle highlight. Just give me 10 days. Test us for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And circle highlight this. We're willing to accept whatever the consequences are. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. 
So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who had the royal food. So the guards took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature knowledge. God gave them the ability to graduate number one in their class. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams. We need both sides of the coin. We need to quit responding to things that don't have an absolute Bible verse. And then we need the courage to stand up and take the consequences to whatever God has spelled out absolutely clearly. But we need to accept the consequences with kindness, with respect, and with courage. I don't know if you've noticed this today, but I see it on the political spectrum. And by the way, I see it on both right and left. So this is not political that way. But what I notice is we have a whole uh, 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 generation, and this isn't younger people, this is boomers on, on down. By generation, I mean this era we live in, where everybody wants to be courageous, but nobody's willing to accept the consequences. We want a virtual signal on social media, or we want to march, or we want to do this or that. And when we break a law and get arrested, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? So there's this weird courage. It's a courage of big talk, but an unwillingness to accept the circumstances. I love how Daniel said, test us politely, kindly, only 10 days. That's a win-win. That's reasonable. And then do with us whatever you want. When he's thrown in the lion's den, he doesn't gripe about it. He knew what the consequences were for praying. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to quit praying. Throw in the lion's den. His three friends, they tell the king. When they're told, listen, you're going to be thrown in this fiery furnace if you don't do what I tell you. They tell him, we're not going to do it. Our God can deliver us. And then I love this next phrase. And even if he does not, because <laughs> by the way, God never delivered anybody but those three dudes. See, I grew up thinking the book of Daniel was teaching me if I'm courageous, God will help me win everything. But in reality, God's got a lot of explaining to do if that's what Daniel's telling us. Because last I looked, everybody thrown into hungry lions <laughs> became dinner. And everybody thrown in a fiery furnace became dead. So that's clearly not the point of Daniel. Be courageous and you get delivered. <laughs> no, be courageous and accept whatever the consequences are. Boldly, because you know how everything ends. And these three got lucky. Daniel got lucky. And God protected him. We draw the line where God draws the line. And it is so easy to draw other lines. And Daniel was so stinking wise that he knew the difference. He didn't sell out credible courage. But he didn't go picking a fight. Incredible wisdom. And now we come to the last thing. It's respect. He treated everyone with respect, even people who didn't deserve it. And if anybody didn't deserve respect, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In other words, they joined his administration. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
And Daniel remained there nearly 70 years till the first year of King Cyrus. In every single, every single interaction we see, Daniel is so respectful. At one point, kind of a cool little thing happens. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's pride gets so great that God uh, strikes him with mental illness for a year and he lives like a crazed animal. And guess who gets to deliver the message to him? Daniel. See, Daniel's risen in the administration over and over because he served him so well and so respectfully. You don't promote people who don't serve you well and with respect. He didn't spit in the coffee. He served him well. And, and so Daniel has risen up and, and the king has this dream. He's puzzled by it and concerned by it. And Daniel gets to deliver this message that the king, you're going to have one year, you're going to have a mental breakdown. Here's how I would have done it. Neb, baby, I've been praying for this for a long time. And I am so happy to tell you. You know what Daniel says? Mind-boggling. Oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. And then he delivers a message. As you read through it, if you take up my assignment, Daniel this week with the lens of the optimism, the wisdom, the, the courage, and the respect. You're going to be blown away by how strong those themes run through chapter after chapter, incident after incident. And the reason he got to speak so powerfully is because of this respect. Think about it in your life and mine. Do you listen to people who don't like you? No, I get defensive. Do you listen to people who look down on you, don't respect you? No, I get immediately defensive. See, Daniel understood that a principle. And that's why God used him. Now, some of us are thinking, yeah, but I'm no Daniel. I want to help you understand. He was like the least likely person to have any influence in Babylon. He's a 16-year-old kid chained to a group of people I mean, who would have ever guessed this would happen? And you and I can be in that same zone and we can think like, yeah, well, that would be great if God would give us this platform or if I in this role or whatever. I'm just a student here at my school or I've got a cubicle next to a couple of other people or maybe you own a small business or whatever it would be. But, but few of us have large platforms of influence on people. But I want to tell you, if we will play our Daniel role, we have way more influence than we would ever guess. I'd like to show you how. Have any of you been to Carlsbad Caverns? Help me out. Anybody here? Just like hardly anybody, okay. Well, let me tell you about it. Carlsbad Caverns, I know you got a huge one around here too. It's like this massive cavern. And uh, we were going there on a vacation. That was one of the spots we were hitting. So I've got my three kids, my wife and myself, and we're going to go there. But what you need to know about this story is uh, we never expected my wife, Nancy, to go down into the cavern because, well, she has claustrophobia. Now, she's not got crazy claustrophobia, but you can see crazy from where she is. Uh, <laughs> ever been to Europe, those little elevators? No way, Jose, you know, she's walking up those stairs. So we just assume she's going to stay in the large visitor center while we go down. 
But as she's there, she's seen pictures on the wall and all this stuff. And she realizes the cavern's huge, like this room. And, and so she just goes, uh, and the elevator, by the way, is massive. <coughs> so she goes, I think I'll go down with you. And I'm thinking, very cool, memory. That's all, awesome. We get down there. The cavern's so big. It's so well lit and all of that. She says, I think I'll go on the tour with you. And I'm going, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is going to be fun. Family event. So we're waiting in line for the tickets, and three dudes come walking out, and one of them says to the other, that was so cool when they turned the lights out. (laughs) Now I've got a moral dilemma. Do I tell her the truth or not? So I didn't. (laughs) But she overheard. So she goes, they turned the lights out? And I said, hon, it's just for like a second or two. Don't worry, just a couple of seconds. Are you sure? Trust me, I'm a pastor. So we go on the tour. At the very end, they set you on these logs, and then to show you how pitch dark it is, you can't even see your hand move in front of your face, they unplug it. 1,001, 1,002, 1,005. Then a bat bit me. I mean, I, I feel this thing on my arm and a little bit of blood, and then the bat spoke. It said, I will never trust you again. Now, in my profession, that's a really bad deal. And so I'm thinking through, like, what other careers can I do? I think I just destroyed my marriage, whatever. Uh, uh, and then I remembered. My oldest son had just got one of those new Timex Indigo lights, you know, where you push the button and it lights up when they were first coming out. Now, what you need to know about that light, it was so weeny that when he got it the first night in his bedroom in Oceanside, He pushed the little button, and we had to get a flashlight to see what time it was. (laughs) But I remembered he had it. So I said, Nathan, push the button on your watch. He did. Somebody over here says, turn that out. I said, I'll kill you if you do. (laughs) So he kept it on. Suddenly we could see our feet. The bat let go. My marriage was saved. (laughs) And I learned an incredibly important lesson. That little light that seemed so useless one night in a bedroom in Oceanside could have led us out of the cave. In other words, the darker it gets, the most powerful, the tiniest of lights becomes. You and I have an opportunity if we will just push the four buttons on the watch God gave us to impact the world we were living in, the offices we work in, the neighborhoods we live in, the city, the state, the country in ways that we have no ability to understand because the darker it gets, the more powerful your light becomes. Satan whispers the exact opposite. And God says, I want Daniel in the, book, in the library. The 66 books in your Bible, let's make sure this is one of them. So that we could know the power we have and the way to plug into that power. Father, would you take the things that we've looked at and help us as men and women in whatever environments we're in, our own little to our own large Babylons, 
to learn the lessons you put into Daniel's life and you saved for thousands of years so today we could continue to learn not how to survive, but how to thrive in this place you have placed us. To your glory and your fame forever. Amen. God bless and thanks.